Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Adam Jaber, who was literally born into this. He is now part of the second generation, running the Colorado Ski Shops of Massachusetts and Vermont, the host of the Out of Bounds podcast, and the founder of Out of Collective. Also, there's a bit of spicy language in this one. So, let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you all know, this show doesn't happen without the support of our title sponsor, Norco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series hosts weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most incredible ride locations. Whether you're a new rider or wanting to advance your skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camp. Check them out at thedirtseries.com or find them at the partner link on our website. Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched. <laughs> so I was telling Adam offline how nervous I was about this because I've got like the OG on the podcast. <laughs> and here I'm like the new gal on the scene. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> no way. Yeah, it's not. I feel like I've been doing it for my whole life at this point, meaning like I'm exhausted from doing it, but it's only been four years. So I don't think four years gets you OG status yet. I don't know. Technology's moving pretty fast. Yeah, you, dude, you were like born into the industry, basically. Yeah, it's true. So, um, so, like, so, yeah, I mean, I'll kind of get into it, I guess. My background is in ski retail. Like you said, I was born into the industry. My father is an immigrant from Palestine and he started a ski shop in 94, 95 ish, which is when I was born and was okay. Like, this sport is fun. It seems like it's something we can do. And I don't know, immigrants have typically have that like hustle mentality, especially when they come over from the U S and like in my father's case, he was literally like paying for all of his siblings back home. Like he was paying, like his father died when he was 18. So when he came here, he was, the intention was I'm going to make money and send it home. Basically weird industry to choose in hindsight, probably to make money and send it anywhere. But yeah, it's been, uh, that's kind of where it started was I grew up in a ski shop. Like I grew up doing retail from a little like from being a little kid and I've been in the shop for working the shop as an adult, I guess, for, you know, 12 years, something like that, maybe a little longer at this point. And I started a podcast four years ago called the Out of Bounds podcast. And now we have a whole collective of shows and we're kind of growing the thing and it's really fun. So yeah, that's kind of the long and short of it. Tell me some fun stories about growing up as a shop rat. You know, honestly, I... When I was a little kid, uh, the most fun thing was to just go hang out, like just to be around the shop employees, to just be in the back shop, like seeing what mounting skis was. It was all like so insane to me until like age eight or nine. And, like, obviously, because you're a little kid and you're like, you have no concept of what reality is in a ski shop or how stressful it is or why people have to work these long days. And I just remember it being like the most fun thing in the entire world. And then around like, nine or 10 or something like that, I stopped being interested in it completely. I don't know what happened, but like I lost all interest for about four or five years and I was just playing like traditional sports basically. And that's probably what caused it honestly is like you start playing sports, you get into middle school, you start meeting girls and like that kind of stuff takes you away from working. And then when I was 15 or 16, we needed like real help in the shop. Like we were just short staffed. So I was like, okay, like, fuck it. We'll try and see what happens. And just go from there. So for, I kind of got thrown in because I had no real experience, like with a job at all. Right. And then you're like, okay, like I have to know, like people expect you to know things like you're the owner's kid. I used to pretend a lot of things, right. I used to pretend I wasn't the owner's kid, that I was just a shop employee. And I still do this sometimes. I used to pretend that I was much older because I look older uh, than I am. So at beard 18, will do that. yeah, exactly. The beard, I've had a beard since I was 15 or 16. So I, when I was 15 or 16, I would pretend I was 25 because I found out quickly that people don't take you seriously as a 15 or 16 year old trying to sell them expensive ski equipment, which to be honest, doesn't make any sense. Like the people that use the equipment the most are those kids that are like in the park all the time on the hill all the time. You're using the equipment more than anybody, especially these, like, it was always the same type of person that I felt like I had to put this show on for. But yeah, so for, I don't know, probably until I was 22, 23, I was like totally lying about how old I was and uh, basically my involvement in the shop, because sometimes you want to be over-involved and then sometimes you want to be not involved 
at all. Like you want to be like, look, this is it. This is the rules. I'm just a shop employee. Help me, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, there's that. I can't like think of anything. Uh, the stories that I think about from the shop are not, I don't necessarily think about funny stories. There's a lot of things that happen that are like bizarre, like, you know, break-ins and like people trying to like, like that kind of stuff happens more often than like actually like funny things. It's a stressful work environment working at a ski shop for what people get paid. That's fair. We're going to talk more about compensation in a little bit. I okay. have a lot of questions about that. Not okay. about yours, but just your thoughts on you it. You can ask me whatever you want. <laughs> so like a Muslim family running a ski shop on the Eastern seaboard in not a ski town like there wasn't an easier path i would imagine there was a lot of easier paths my mom grew up uh in western mass so she's from here she like she skied as a kid her family were all like decently big skiers like would sell like tag sale ski equipment on the side so that's kind of what started it in my dad's head was like all right we can if they could do this at this level we can do it at a much higher level but yeah i mean i can't tell you even now like people look at my father they look at me and it's like, I've kind of gotten over that hump where people look at us like, oh, there's the Muslim kid that's in the ski shop. Like it, we're past that at this point. Right. But for my dad and my sister who wears a jab, like I, it, it's difficult. It still is difficult to this day. And growing up, I like, I can't tell you how much just like blatantly racist shit got thrown around in the ski shop. And I laugh about it now and it's, but it's, and it sucks, but that's kind of why when I talk about it online, I'm like, this is like legit stuff. Like this happens. Like this happened to me for my whole life, basically until, you know, I kind of got over that hump and like, in all fairness, I'm not a very, I'm not a devout Muslim at all. <laughs> like I am not, I, I wish in some aspects that I cared a little bit more. And I was, but I don't know, I kind of have my toes in both pools, so to speak. So I think it allows you to see what everyone does a little more. And that's kind of been my, my situation, but yes, to answer your question, I think there was a much easier path. Probably if you ever get to meet or talk to my father, he is not somebody who tends to take the path of least resistance. He is very much the opposite of that. <laughs> I think that I would get along with your dad a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. He's very funny. He's very personable. It's he's hilarious, but like, there's no telling him no. And and I will tell you, like, getting lines in that shop was impossible. Like, getting product lines was impossible for years and years to the point where he would drive down to New Jersey, go to a shop that existed then that was bigger. He had made friends with this guy, and he would just buy his inventory at wholesale. This because we wouldn't like, there was nothing that we could do to get these products line, lines in. So eventually what ended up happening and how we got our first actual ski line, I think it was Dina star, the ramp walked in and all the shit was on the wall. Already. <laughs> like, so he was just like, I, I don't have a choice. Like I might as well get the commission for it. And you guys are going to get it from somewhere else. And like, he was buying shit from Europe and there was just, there was no way you were going to tell him no. And he was not going to get it right. Like there was going to be a way that it was going to end up in the store one way or the other. He's since been a little more refined and a little more like, okay, this is the right way to do things. This is, you know, but yeah, up until maybe when I started was when he stopped being that way, where he was just like, okay, the, because the business had legs to stand on. Right. And it was just like, we were selling so much product. He was one of the first retailers to have a website in ski. So like in 98 or 99, we had like a mail-in mail order site. So very early on. We were selling so much more product, but we didn't give a shit about the front end retail at all because we just could ship it out and we would sell just as much as every other shop in the area combined. So that we kind of over time have tried to mix both things so that they work together. So now obviously like I, I'm a very aesthetic person. Like I care about that kind of stuff. So the retail stores are nice now they're clean They're When I was growing up, they were like. It was insane the way that they look. They looked like a warehouse, right? Because that's essentially what they were because people, and I don't think this is the only reason, but people weren't buying from the Arab guy in town with a thick accent. You know, they were buying from the guy that they knew and grew up skiing with. And that's fair, but it's, it took a long time. You guys are like, you're super established in the community now, like outside of your online sales, which continue to be phenomenal. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's true. We're trying. I think the, the nice thing is like I had, when I started the podcast, it was really just because I wanted to, I wanted stories out there that were similar to mine. And I wanted to be able to bring my perspective to the table. And that has like coupled with everything that we've done at the shop, the podcast works together with that so well. So now I've, I've met so many new people because I knew someone else, right. From the retail side. And that connection is just so much easier to make when you have one connection to start with, you know? And now, next I was going to ask you about the impetus for the podcast, because it's a sports podcast, but it's so much more than a sports podcast, like the topics you touch on and, and the way, you know, the spaces that you've been creating for people. Yeah. And that's kind of just developed over time. Initially, it was just like, I wanted to talk to people that I admired, right? Like it was as simple as that, right? As I felt like I have a perspective, nobody has. And in the beginning, it started very gear heavy, right? Like I just wanted to talk to people about gear because I was so comfortable with it. But the more you talk to people, the more you realize like they have real stories. And a lot of these stories, you know, intertwine with stuff that you relate to and stuff that you're passionate about. And now, yeah, I mean, there's very few topics that like we don't touch. There's, we're kind of an all-encompassing show, especially with the network as a whole. But with my show in particular, I'm happy to talk to pretty much anyone, like from the people that may sound psychotic on one end of the spectrum to people who may sound psychotic to the other end. Of the, like I'm willing to have the conversation, I think, across the board because intent, I think, is a lot of what makes these conversations work and makes them important, right? Because there's so many different people out there that you only get to see online, right? And you don't get to hear if them talk for an extended period of time, you don't get to hear how their brain works. And that's like, that's kind of been what I've wanted to do over the past few years is kind of get a little deeper. And it sounds corny, but like get deeper and actually get to know these people and like be able to talk about shit that matters because we can talk about skiing all day, right? And riding bikes or whatever. All that stuff doesn't matter if we don't actually care about the core person first. And that's why it all started. And that's why it's continued to me because if it continued as a gear podcast, I would have quit already. So you are still a bit of a gearhead though. For sure. I definitely am. I like, I pride myself on knowing a lot about gear. I like knowing about gear. I like talking about it and I will talk to people and argue probably more aggressively about gear than anything else because I'm open to hearing people's opinions on other things, but gear, I'm like, all right, very seldom am I willing to like, we'll have a conversation. Opinions are everything, right? Like, that's great. I still will probably end the conversation thinking I'm right and I'm working on fixing that. But I, it is a thing that I am, it's the lesser of the evils, I think. So I'm, I, I stomp my feet in pretty hard sometimes on the gear conversations. Okay. I'm going to ask you some gear questions because we've got, I am not a gear person. I'm a person okay. I use the, and I know what I like and I know what I want and I want that and I don't know anything about it. But we got a lot of people, a lot of folk who are, you know, newly getting into the outdoor space and they got a ton of questions and I want to sort of create that space where, you know, we're bringing in the experts. I'm not the expert. God knows no one wants me to answer questions, but first and <laughs> foremost, what are your, what's your rigs right now? What are you pushing for bikes? So I have a few. I'm running a Santa Cruz Stigmata as my gravel bike. I have a little all city townie bike that I ride all the time. That's pretty like tricked out. And then a Santa Cruz Blur, Rebel Rascal, and then got a Rebel Rail kind of sneaking down the pipeline pretty soon here. So that's what I'm running for bike stuff. Nice. So what do you have, what, like, what advice do you have for folks who are just getting into cycling? And I know right now the market's ridiculous with supply chain issues, but like, what sort of, if someone comes to you and they're like, ah, I think I want to start to get into cycling. Like, what are the first few things you tell them? I think the first thing that anybody should do is try to find a community that wants to do it, right? If you're getting into it alone, try to find other people that want to be involved with the same sport, right? And whether that's like local group rides with shops, that's more important than the gear because a lot of times people will go out and spend the money on a bike, not have anybody to go with, and then it just collects dust in their garage, right? So I think finding other humans, especially now that we're starting to finally ease out of the pandemic, I think that's super critical starting off, right? Because you learn so much riding a bike with other people. And this is, it kind of applies to ski too, but bike, it's way more important because you learn kind of the subtle nuances between 
like what is good, how to climb, where your body position should be. So that matters a ton in the beginning. Everybody's a beginner at some point. And I think mountain biking in particular is really receptive to beginners. Nobody like skiing, you feel like the last guy or girl or whatever on the trail if the person's way better than you and they're just ripping ahead, right? On a mountain bike, because there's like meetup points, trail intersections all the time, and because people are conscious of the ability levels of others, it's so much more growth oriented. But at the product level, just get a front suspension, decent bike that you can roll around on, something simple. I mean, you don't need to spend a ton of money, get disc brakes, get a suspension fork, you really don't need to go crazier than that. Buy a brand that you know if you can from a local shop or if you can't buy it from a local shop. Tons of bigger retailers, specialized track giant offer services where they'll ship to your local shop. So you can just order it online, pick the bike that's best for you, order it from the website, ship directly to your whatever you, whatever shop you choose, honestly, which is really cool. I think that's a good route for the industry to go. But yeah, I mean, spend 600 bucks basically. Like that's where I think the number is where... You know, if you spend a thousand bucks, do you get something better? Sure. But I think at 600 bucks, that range is kind of like that happy medium where somebody can get a beginner level bike and it take them to the next level for a few years. Right. No, that's a, that's a good metric. So I am a short person. I am not five two. I like to lie and say I'm five two. Like in my boots, I can stretch, but <laughs> but I'm not a child sized person. Are there is there anybody out there in the field right now who's really paying attention to like body size and body dynamics beyond the standard? Everyone's five seven. Yeah, so that's a tough one. The company I can think of off the bat would be Live as Giants, like female centric. And honestly, female centric is kind of a weird way to market it, but that's how they're marketing it. The size averages are based off of people who are like five, four, as opposed to people who are five, eight. So it starts smaller. There's smaller size options, usually down to a double extra small, which is like for somebody that's four, nine or something like that, which it doesn't sound like that's you, but I, I think that Liv does a really good job and Giant does too, um, on the general side of things at offering full size ranges, right? On those price point bikes, Giant goes down to in a men's bike all the way down to a double extra small as well. So, and the idea is you could get a, a teenager, right, on a decent mountain bike for not a ton of money and they could grow into it, right? Because it'll have that bigger, it'll have bigger wheels. You can adjust some of the sizing. So I think on both, on all sides, Giant and Live do a really good job. Specialized always has done a good job at that kind of stuff. But I think the price points have been a little more affected by the pandemic at this point. So like their beginner level bike is where their medium level bike was priced. It, it's kind of just gone up and up. So versus Giant and Live haven't been so affected by it since they own a lot of their own factories and their bigger brand as a whole. What about like body size inclusiveness? I, I came up a few times during the pandemic in different articles. There's one in Bicycle Magazine. There was one in the New York Times about concerns of people of a certain body size being able to find bikes that that fit them so i mean it's it's kind of a tough question because i think the industry likes to market specific bikes to specific fitness levels right so i think if you come in and you go to a shop and you're say you're 350 pounds right like it, that's a, a road bike may not be the best bike for you even if you're going to be riding on the road I think that's kind of where the industry needs to make adjustments and not just the industry shops need to make adjustments and how they sell to people. Because if you go and you sell someone a road bike and the 350 pounds, they're just not going to have a good time on it, right? Like they're going to, the fit's going to be wrong. That stuff just doesn't exist at this point because road bikes are made to be lightweight. They're made to be like flimsy. Like I'm 220. I, I smash a baseline road bike to pieces. Like it's not, they're just not made for it. Right. But I think so many shops go and they sell that because that's what's asked of them. That's okay. the bracketing, I guess, of bikes is where a lot of the issue starts in terms of fit and in terms of bike offering. I think almost every company, every major company at this point has a bike that would work for everyone. It's just picking the right bike because for some people like if you get a linebacker in like a legitimate nfl linebacker you put them on a mountain bike i mean the wheels like it's this it's as simple as it can be right the wheels are wider the tires are wider everything is dispersed a little bit more it, it makes more sense to be on a mountain bike and as you kind of progress 
through different fitness goals, through different lifestyle. And if you find yourself on like just on the road, there's options to adapt those bikes and make them more worthwhile. Mountain bikes, the most versatile thing that you can buy. And that's why so many of them get sold every year because you can make a mountain bike into a road bike without too much work. It's really hard because of the way the bike's built to make a road bike into a mountain bike, right? Like it's almost impossible because of the way the frames are made, because of the frame shape, tire width, that whole deal. That's where the problem kind of arises. So I think too many people just get sold bikes that are not really for them. So it's not so much that the equipment isn't there, it's that the education isn't there. It's the education isn't there. And I think that people get hung up on like, they watch Lance Armstrong and they're like, I want to be like that guy. So I want to buy a road bike may not be best for you. Right. I mean, it's not, I'm not going to go buy a mini Cooper and pretend that I fit really well. Like, it's just not, it, there's certain thing, there's certain products that are really easily adaptable to every body type, right. And to every shape and size. And that's kind of where you have to be at certain times, right? Like I don't, there are burlier road bikes for sure. Like if you want something burlier, gravel bikes exist, but then price point goes up, right? Versus you can get a price point mountain bike for five, 600 bucks and it'll be dur durable enough to last somebody plenty of time throughout whatever, whatever they want to do, whether it's just riding on the road or it, I'm really of the mindset that getting people outside and getting them on a bike is step one. Right. Like once you get to step one, you can go wherever you want beyond that. If you can't get to step one because somebody sold you a road bike and you're like pretending that it's comfortable to be in that position to start off, it, it's not right. Right. You just wasted a bunch of money. Now, you, now you're committed to this financially and you're frustrated. It's aggravating and it's it's just not right for you. Right. That does a disservice to everybody. I think it does a disservice to the shop because that customer never comes back does a disservice to the brand because now somebody else is like disenlightened, I guess, with the way that cycling is. It's uh, cycling and riding bikes is for everybody, right? And so it should be as simple as that. And I think what we have to kind of acknowledge more, you know, it, in this space as like, whether it's on my side in a shop, which, you know, I'm on the floor and in the store very seldom these days, but everybody at our shop and everybody at the shops that I frequent, whether it's, even if it's not ours, they get it right. The point that somebody is at when they walk in the door may not be where they want to be, but like their goal may to be maybe actually to be on a road bike long-term, right. But they can't get to that point until they start riding a bike enough to get that actual body position down, to get the comfort level on a bike, to get used to riding a bike period. Like for example, my aunt, got a bike two years ago, hasn't ridden a bike since she was, since she was 12 and it was not a cyclist, right? Like has no idea, but she wanted a road bike. It, like I fought tooth and nail to get her to buy a mountain bike or a hybrid or something else to start. But sometimes it's just what people have in their head. And she has the luxury of being my aunt. So I gave her a road bike. She hated it. Then I got her on a hybrid and then we moved on. Like it, it's like, but now She's riding the bike. She's comfortable. If she wants to go to a road bike or a gravel bike, it's really easy for her now because she understands at least how to ride a bike, the basics of it, and kind of getting the mechanics down. Yeah. No, I love that. It's going to be my last gear question, but who do you know anyone out in the field right now who's doing size inclusive kit or anyone that you would recommend? Because I know that clothing is a barrier and I'm not that you need Huge. to be in road bicycling kit to ride a bike all clothes are bike clothes but for certain types of rides and certain types of adventures you do need more technical clothing for sure as far as clothing goes I'm probably not the best person to know because I don't fit in very much of the clothing like I'm not built like a roadie I'm pretty wide like I'm a wide person I'm bigger there's not a I don't know. Most cycling clothing is Euro based and fits weird. And I don't like the majority of it. There are companies out there like, uh, wild ride for women makes a full line and that stuff is really cool. I like that stuff a lot. I end up riding in Ripton shorts, like jorts all the time because they're stretchy and they're comfortable. That stuff works really well for me. As far as one company that's just doing a good job for clothing, they're not I don't think anyone's doing a good enough job because it's not everywhere, right? If it if they were doing a good enough job to hit all the sizes and all the different categories of people that there were, that it would be available everywhere, right? Because it's a constant struggle. It's not a struggle that 
like, for example, that that's where we struggle as a shop the most is finding clothing that fits everybody, right? Is those bigger sizes and the really small sizes because you don't sell that many of them, you have the, it's funny how much opportunity you lose every year to get a new customer because they walk in and can't find like a pair of shorts that fit them or a shirt that fits them. But the problem is a lot of this stuff that we can buy, it's not that we don't sell that much of it. It's that it actually is like bad. It's poor fitting, right? Like it doesn't, it fits for somebody who's a medium. It doesn't fit on somebody who's an XL, right? right? Like I'll put on an XL jersey a lot of times and I will like, it'll be skin tight versus I'm wearing an XL t-shirt right now and it's baggy. And like, that's how the, the fit is just not consistent. And it's very much based off of who buys the most in cycling. And it's kind of a bummer, but it's nice to see companies that are from outside come in like Wild Rye, like Ripton, even honestly, Troy Lee does a good job with a lot of their stuff because it's a little more like looser fitting. It, it's, it fits well, but it's not, I don't know, roadie kits. I'm still kind of out to lunch on. I don't have anything great. That's fair. There's, I think there's an expectation that at my child-sized height, that I am a child-sized human. And that is not true. So bicycling kit has been a forever struggle for me. <laughs> yeah, I, that I will say for shorts, like that Ripton stuff is so stretchy. Like it's all I ride it. Like I did a gravel race the other day. It's all like, it is what the fit is so dialed um, on that stuff. I actually hate plugging them because they, Adam X tried to get them to work with us and sponsor the show. And they were like, eh, we don't really need to right now. And they let them on for a while. So I don't necessarily even like talking about the product, but it's so fucking good that I can't not talk. Like it's, I'm wearing some right now. They're so good that I buy them. Like I don't, I'm at the point right now we're buying a product in the outdoors for me. And this is like a humble brag and maybe a really brag. I don't buy product very much. Like I don't, it's just not because compensation, my product is such a thing. There's, I have product to last me a lifetime right now. I bought these shorts. I've bought like five pairs of them. And that's the biggest compliment, I guess, that I can give a brand. That says something. That would say something to me because I'm petty. <laughs> Same. I, I do not want to give them money, but I, I happily give them money when I put these shorts on every time. I'm like, all right, cool. Like they fit good. I can ride whatever I want. And I can wear, like I wear these at work all day. I'm going to go ride after this and like, uh, I'll feel good. And they're stretchy and they don't make you feel like they're cool, but they don't make you feel like you're in some weird cycling kit that, you know, is made for a racer. Okay. I'm going to check those out. Yeah. They're cool. So let's get back to the collective love. Have you have been filling up all of my podcast feeds and I love it on the skin track and whatnot all winter listening to everybody. And one of the things that stuck out to me, it was two months ago, you won't remember it. And you were commenting on something. What doesn't remember? I don't remember, but you said we're building a place for us. And I, you probably don't remember saying it, but I know that you felt it. So what did you mean by that? I think I say, I feel like I say that reasonably often. And what I mean by that is I, it's a place for us in the sense that we as a group should be just that, right? It's like we as a group don't need to conform to like, we're a bunch of people that are this gender this group, like we just are us, right? We're just human beings. We want to do stuff and we want that to be as simple as possible, right? I, I want to be able to be an Arab guy and walk into a ski shop and not feel judged because I'm more brown than the next person, right? I don't want, I don't want any of the women that are in my life or on the show as hosts to ever have to deal with somebody telling them that they don't know anything about gear because they're a woman. I, I don't want people to feel like there's a place where they, I don't know, they can't have conversations that are real and valuable to more than just themselves. Right. That's kind of what I meant by that. I would assume, I mean, I guess it depends on context, but I always felt because of how I grew up and watching like the kinds of things that my family went through and my siblings went through, I never wanted a ski industry or a bike industry that wasn't. And honestly, I kind of hate the word inclusive because it, it has this negative connotation to it that shouldn't be there. It, I want it to feel like everybody's place. Right. And that's kind of what the collective 
should be. And that's what we want it to be is a place where it doesn't matter. Like we all hold the same. My opinion means just as much as your opinion, as Adam X's opinion, as Ethan's or Tori's, Renee's, Indra, any of these people that are involved in the show and any of the guests that we have on, everybody's opinion is, is welcome. And it doesn't really matter where you come from. In the last, and increasingly so, you've platformed some some really important conversations. And on the other side of that, and I think it happened as recently as today, I don't know if you were responding to something or if it was a preemptive statement, like, yes, this matters in the outdoors. Like, what's your commentary back to all the shut up and sing people? So honestly, at this point, I get less of that because I'm fairly aggressive when I respond. Like, I'm not a, like, <laughs> I tweeted a while ago that I hate when people like come and like, this is woke, whatever. I'm like, I, if you meet me in real life, I'm aggressive. I don't give a fuck about like doing, like, I'm just all over the place. I just don't like bullshit. And that, like, that's my core, right? I hate when people are treated poorly. I hate when somebody decides that they're the better person because they think a certain way, like it just like fuck off with all of that. Like I, I can't, sorry, I've sworn a lot on the show, but That's okay. I don't like when that kind of stuff happens. And I don't like when people are, they pretend that skiers, athletes, cyclists, whatever, don't have real lives. They're not real people, right? They just do this one thing. And just because you have a platform. That means the platform can only be one thing. It's like, no, motherfucker, I created this platform. I'm going to do what I feel like is right. If you don't like it, there's an unfollow button. If you want to come at me, then I will happily have a conversation about it. And if we can't get to a point where we're like on the same page or at least civil, then bye. You know, like, I don't need it. Like, I'm, I'm not here for it. Also, on behalf of Canada, because I feel like I can speak on behalf of Canada. Thanks for <laughs> Ancon. Like, loving what? it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Designate myself the representative for my country. I've also really appreciated your open dialogue on mental health. And I think that's so important, particularly coming from the men in our industry, the community, wherever we're calling it, that have platforms to bring these forward. And it was bold choice for you to create that space. So what was sort of your thoughts behind that? Well, my thought was like, I'm, I'm struggling, right? Like I was struggling for the better part of two years and I'm, I'm finally kind of coming to a place where I'm comfortable talking about it I, because in the beginning I was talking about it, but I wasn't comfortable with it. Right. I was kind of just saying stuff like, like it wasn't about me, but it was totally about me, <laughs> like stuff that I was going through. And then I realized more and more that people also related to it. And then that's what kind of became the background to it, right? Like I started talking about it more because I realized, oh, I'm not the only one that's going through this stuff. And, you know, it's a very weird thing to talk about, but it's a very important thing to talk about, especially in the year that we're in, because a lot of people are struggling with their mental health, right? Like we were stuck basically in a box for a period of time stuck inside your own bubble. You're worried about getting sick every other day. You're worried about getting other people sick. You're worried about the world. Everything feels like it's imploding every other day. It's a tough time to be a human being on earth, right? Like it's not a particularly easy time. That being said, you know, it's not the end of the world. Hopefully there's a lot of positivity that I can kind of take out of it now, but yeah, I, I was struggling a lot. So there were days when I would just like, and I've said this multiple times before, I would just come home and I would just lay on my kitchen floor and cry until I passed out, basically. Like, and it would just be like, but you wouldn't know that. Like, I would still be like the next day, I'd be like tweeting, being an asshole on the internet, like just just like out skiing, doing stuff. But there was days when I literally couldn't make myself go ski. I couldn't make myself go ride my bike all last summer. I wanted to ride my bike so bad. And I did a decent amount, but every time was a force. I was forcing myself to go out there. So you start having these conversations about like, sometimes you just don't want to go and it's the best thing to not go. Right. And sometimes you have to go and just get yourself out of that hole. Right. That time is different for everybody and everybody's experiences with mental health are so personal, but somehow so collective yeah. that it's a really important thing. I felt like to talk about with my experiences. And then I had like somebody who wanted to talk about it in Drew Peterson and with Todd from Bombsnow, like both of those guys wanted to talk about it. And especially Drew, 
specifically was like, I want to talk about this, but let's wait until the film comes out so people can like see where I was at. And then we can talk about it. But it was very bizarre because everything he was saying he went through, I was like, fuck, that was me six weeks ago. You know, like that was so relevant to me so I can have this conversation with you. Right. And we have a lot of the same issues. So it's it became more comfortable for me to talk about. And the more I talked about it, the more I was willing to kind of bring other people up as much as I could. Because, I mean, we got probably, I don't know, two, 300 messages after we did that interview that were just like, thank you for having this conversation. Here's what I'm going through. And I was just like, holy shit, this is a lot. But it also makes you realize how important that stuff is to the community as a whole, especially in outdoors where we're supposed to just be like, skiing is the best thing in the world. Nothing can replace skiing. Nothing can replace riding a bike. Everything is so great because I'm, but it's not true. It's just not what it is, right? And I still have friends who say, like, skiing fixes everything. Okay, I'm glad it does for you. Like, wait until, I hope the day never comes, right? Where you are in a position where skiing doesn't fix everything, right? Because those days have come and they've gone and they come and go still. But they're, I don't know, it's a very, it's a very hard thing to deal with when you're in it. It's like you're drowning and you're waiting for somebody to throw you a paddle, but nobody throws what nobody knows what paddle to throw you like or how to get you out of the water. Uh, it's interesting that you bring up a water metaphor because I so the week that, that show came out was also the week I finally got the courage to watch Learning to Drown. Uh. And I had to actually pause your show. I was really excited to listen to it. I needed to get into a good space. So I actually paused it on my way up the hill and then put it back on in the truck on the way home. Mm. And I had to actually pull over and finish listening to it. And I was like, it was just so amazing to hear, you know, thoughts that I have been feeling, things that I have been thinking coming from an entirely different perspective from an entirely different person. And it's so nice to know that you're not alone. Right. Yeah, that part. Well, thank you, first of all, for listening at all. Like it's I appreciate when people kind of talk about that stuff and it hits a chord because it's huge. Like it it, it matters and it really matters to know that you're not alone. And I can't tell you how much having that conversation with Drew helped me. Right. And I hope it helped him a little bit, too, because we both ended that and we were like, that was fucking great. Like, we don't care if zero people listen to. We hope everybody listens to it. But we that just felt right to talk about. And we're glad that we did it, regardless of what the numbers are, regardless of sponsors, regardless of any of those things, stuff like this, stuff like Drew's film, stuff like Jess Camaro's, like learning to drown was so good. Like, it's so good. It's so real. That shit matters. Even her on the bumhole, like her talking about her experiences is so insane to listen to because there's so many parts of it that are relatable and you can feel how raw her emotions are. It, that stuff matters, right? In outdoors. And that's why I'm not, it, that has actually made me less afraid to talk about things that matter, like abortion laws, right? Like it, that's something that's current. I, I don't, I'm never going to not say anything, right? I, I think that if, like, I don't care about the trivial shit, right? Somebody did something to make a mistake, whatever. I, that, that stuff to me, not my problem. Even stuff like, you know, I had Ahmed the Dalian, right? Like he's a crazy yeah. person in his own right, but he's a wonderful person in so many ways. He's nuts in so many ways, but there's so many things about him that as a whole, that are also good. Like people aren't just pieces of shit. They're you like, really they're interesting things to say. And I went into that with like, I know. and came out with it. Like a, he had some really interesting things to say. I don't agree with him, exactly. but he had some really <laughs> interesting things to say. Yeah. Especially if you follow him on Instagram, if you follow him on Instagram, he's a way worse person than he is in real life. And that's, uh, I think that's a lot of people though. I think, and I think that's everyone, no matter what, no one is living the life they're living on Instagram. For sure. No one. For sure. For sure. I can promise you, I am not, I, it's funny. I have no clue how I'm perceived on social media at all. Like I have no awareness of what I do, what I say, if it's going to be okay, if people give a shit about it. I like, I'm very analytical with like on social about our numbers, what does well, what performs well, this kind of stuff. But as far as when I put out what I'm about to put out new content or I'm about to put out something or a story or a tweet or whatever, I just don't know. Right. I don't know. I know the formatting that, you know, the algorithms tend to like, but I don't know if the content is good content. So 
and I have no idea how people perceive me. So that that's a totally different issue as you know, by itself. Neither do I. And I don't want to know. I'm not very active on Instagram, but I'm very active on Twitter. And I, yeah, sometimes I wonder, and then I'm like, I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I have no, I don't know what people are really like until, especially with Twitter, with Instagram, you get the photo aspect of it. You kind of get a little more, but you get a little more people's brains on Twitter. So it's hard, right? I like, I've said it before. I like Twitter the best because there's real discourse and you actually can have, like, you can read somebody's thoughts in the time that they're thinking, right? Instagram is so curated and it's so like, I'm going to show the best version of myself versus like Twitter. You'll see somebody just be like, shit, my team lost. This happened. Like just pulling their hair out. Right. So that's the difference for me between those two platforms. And that's why I like Twitter better, but Instagram is an easy one for it's easier for me to manipulate, I guess. Fair. You may have to teach me how to do that. I figured that out yet. Switching gears a little bit to something, you know, equally controversial, but maybe not so personal. You've been really vocal about compensation for athletes mm -hmm. and changing the way that, you know, the industry, the community currently operates. Talk to me about that. So I think for a long time, being sponsored, air quotes, it has meant you get gear, right? That's being sponsored. And when I was growing up, that was being sponsored. Everybody I knew was sponsored it felt like because they got gear from a company and that company, if you're a better athlete, gets to use your likeness, gets to use your photos, gets to use your stuff because you're sponsored. Right. And I think there is some value and I never want to say like, there's no value in just giving somebody a pair of skis and getting their foot in the door. Right. Because there is some value. There. What I have a problem with is people not getting paid their worth. And I think that happens so much because people are so receptive to free gear. It starts the, it starts this downward trajectory where once they get paid, it's like getting two grand. Once you've been getting free skis for five years is like, whoa, I'm getting paid. Mind blown. Two grand goes away like that in skiing. Like that's a weekend somewhere, you know, that's, it's not, especially if Our you're bad. not, I'm, yeah, I'm terrible with money. So for me, it's, I wouldn't even know how fast that would dissipate. Like it would just be, it, I don't know. So what I found the more I talked to people is that people were making so little money as professional high level athletes that I was just like, what are you doing? Like, why are you accepting these contracts? And they're like, well, I need the money to go do this. So companies would take advantage of the fact that an athlete needs money. They know that they can get them for X amount of dollars, right? And to me, it just seems crazy, right? Because I look at myself and I'm like, I can host a stupid podcast and I can be on, like, I can just ask people to come on interviews on Instagram and we can get paid. Like I, I could, Mike, I can pay my mortgage with what we do here at the show and we pay everybody that's involved with the show. So, and now, I mean, initially it wasn't like that, but. The fact that anybody wanted to give us money was insane. I am not a professional athlete, right? I am barely a professional talker. So I, I don't understand why it's so hard to give athletes money when we're asking them to be marketers, athletes, brand representatives, and also mentors to younger athletes, right? You're doing all of these things at once and you're putting your body on the line. Why would you not? And I think the simple answer is people don't know what to ask for. People don't know how to negotiate a contract because it's not something that's taught in school. It's not something that's taught to an athlete for sure that maybe didn't go to college, maybe did go to college. There, there's no way to tell what your peers making, right? I mean, I'm positive that let's, I don't know, we can use a uh, Tanner Hall is not making as much money as Eileen Gu, right? Like I am 100% sure of this. And the part of the reason is the way that Eileen conducts herself for sure, because I'm a huge fan. I think she's the shit. I think she's Indeed. like, she's killing it. However, she has an agent who's very good and he takes care of a lot of that stuff for her. She just has a lot. She's talented, right? The industry wants to back her. It's the same story as a lot of the higher up athletes, like the Lindsey Vons, the Michaela Schifrin's, the 
Chris Davenport's, these people have found a way to make themselves known and put themselves in front of a camera in a way that allows them to get paid. And again, I don't know what any of those people make. I'm just kind of throwing out names here, but there's no way to know what they get paid, right? There, there's not a conversation being had athlete to athlete. There's not a union for skiers. And I don't even know if I'm necessarily suggesting that there should be one. All I'm saying is tell me what you get paid, right? Like we had Kyle Smain on and Kyle Smain was like, I made five grand the year that I was like ranked second in the world in half pipe. So he's like, I made five grand from skiing. So imagine travel, paying for like trips, hotels, all this stuff, training, living off of five grand. Right. How does that make a career? It's just not sustainable long term. And then you see, you know, Vale charging 200 and some odd dollars for a lift ticket and, you know, 2.1 million Epic passes sold. This kind of stuff happens. And you're just like, what world are we living in that this is okay? And some of the best gears in the world are making no money. Like, I know what a lot of these contracts look like now. And I'm just thrown by the system that we've kind of created. And I won't pretend that there's a, bunch of money in skiing that everybody can make LeBron James money. Like I'm not naive. I just think that everybody should be making more than they are. I, and I think that's across the board. I don't think there's a single overpaid athlete in skiing, right? I, I don't think there's one. I don't like if you, you could rattle off a list and even if they're not skiing anymore, I think they're still probably underpaid. I, it's just not at legends of the sport. Glenn Plake. I know Glenn Plake is underpaid. I know it for a fact that he, it's just like that stuff is not, it doesn't sit well with me. It's not cool because I know what a lot of these brands spend on marketing. I know what a lot of these brands for PR and I'm not like, and again, like I might be shooting myself in the foot with all these conversations because somebody's going to go and not pay me and pay somebody else. But I, I don't really care. I genuinely don't really care. As long as we have enough to pay everybody that's on the collective, we can keep doing what we're doing. I really don't care beyond that. So I just found it so insulting to have a conversation with an athlete who I hold in such a high regard and find out that like my salary from a company that we share as a sponsor is higher than theirs, right? That that seems insane to me. I'm not seem... saying you should be paid less. I'm saying they should be paid more. Right. And I think, well, and who knows? Like, I think I should be paid less all the time. Like, I I'm, I'm, I'm not the best negotiator in the world because I don't like, because my father and you, like anybody will tell you this is the most aggressive negotiator in the entire world He's nothing is good enough. He's like, I want 20 add odds onto this simple thing. So, but I'll tell you what, I'm a very good salesperson. I'm very good at selling our brand and I'm very good at selling myself. So that part of it, I feel like we get paid well. Enough. And I also am good at having the conversation, right? I'm totally open. If people want to know how much I make on a contract, I will have the conversation. Like it's, I'm not shy about that stuff because I think pretending that stuff is kind of trivial and, and not like taboo, I guess, to talk about is what allows companies to not pay people, Absolutely. right? It's like, I'm not flexing, right? I don't care that I make a lot of money. And even if I am flexing, you should know what I'm making so that you could ask for more. Well, and that's my next question. What's the advice to, you know, young folk breaking into the industry? Should they be asking their peers? Talk to your peers. Yeah. Some people are going to say no. They don't want to tell you. And that's fine. Like, I, and that's why, like, when I ask people on the show, I don't ask them directly. I ask them in a way that allows them to answer how they feel comfortable. So sometimes people will tell me. Sometimes, like Kristen Pepper told me the other day, makes $10,000 a month on TikTok. And I'm just like, what is going on? Right. Yeah, I'm going to have to learn TikTok. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, same. I'm like, immediately afterwards, I'm like peppering him, no pun intended, with questions about how to use TikTok, what the algorithm looks like, what kind of shit I'm supposed to be doing. But yeah, that's my advice is talk to your peers and don't just talk to people in that circle. Go outside of that, right? Go talk to a marketer. Go talk to somebody at a company if you have access to it, right? If you're a kid in a shop trying to like wrench and also become a pro, why wouldn't you go and talk to your company rep and find out what a flow program looks like, right? Try to make that next level connection Try to get an email from a marketing person and have a conversation with them. See what that looks like. I have been lucky enough to be in a position where I get to meet a lot of people from both the pod side and the retail side. I, I get to meet people all the time. And because the industry is so small, you find out that everybody is connected in some way. So that's, yeah, I mean, it's really as simple as that. You just ask people what they make and like, don't be afraid to take a little less, like kind of be realistic with yourself. I think that's part of the thing too, because it's really easy to fall into the trap of like, I'm the shit, right? Like I'm so good. If you find yourself in that position, that's really cool. 
but companies are fully aware that they can find somebody else cheaper too. So there has to be a balance between those two things and figure out what works for yourself. And if you're bad at it and you're at the position where like, I'm a mid-level athlete or I'm a really talented athlete, but I just don't know how to negotiate and I don't have a family member to lean on. I don't have people in my corner, so to speak, find an agent, like find somebody to help you out, like find a representative that's willing to get in your corner. Like even if, like, I'll, I'll fucking do it. Like I'll do it for you. You know, like it's really as simple as that because you just have to have somebody that knows something and then you can get to the next step. But if you at zero, you don't know what you don't know. So you have a really niche and interesting vantage point into the entire industry and a long-standing vantage point into the industry. What are we not talking about? Oh boy. I, you know, I think things that don't get talked about enough in the industry is the impact that our sport has on the environment, on the day-to-day, how much it actually costs to run a ski resort what things can be done better. Like, I think we have these surface level conversations about almost everything in skiing and in the industry. And they're so clickbaity and they're so like snow brains is one of like my least favorite media outlets because they do this thing where they clickbait the shit out of everyone. And then the article is almost, has almost zero detail to it. Right. And then there's no follow-up. You never find out anything more really. But I think what ends up happening in so many cases is people just get all ramped up and it gets even like I posted something yesterday about like, like the housing crisis and how the meeting went yesterday, like yesterday, mm-hmm. Tuesday, mm-hmm. and people just immediately comment like, fuck Vail, right? It's an easy thing to say, but it's not even in, the, in this situation. Vail's actually trying to do a decent thing, right? They're trying to provide affordable housing for their own benefit, mind you, but that doesn't change the fact that they are trying to create affordable housing that doesn't exist, right? I would rather somebody like up Flint did that instead of Vail, like somebody that actually gave a fuck about the community did that, but I will take what I get, right? Like I'm yeah, not going to sit here absolutely. and pretend somebody else is building, it, you know? That's the that's my problem with a lot of that stuff. So, I think that doesn't get talked about. It, a lot of topics just get talked about at the very surface level because people only have the capacity to talk about things at a surface level, right? And I think people kind of pick their niches and they pick where they want to be and they pick what conversations, like people will join POW, like protect our winters, and they'll make that their whole identity. And they'll pretend that's fixing the world when in reality, it's a combination of everything, right? And they won't even go past that top level of, I joined POW, I'm doing a good thing. And to a certain extent, sure, they are. But what is POW doing with the money that they, that is donated to them, right? Like, what can you do to better what POW does? How can you become more involved in your communities? These kinds of things, the access to information there needs to be a little clearer, right? Like it needs to be clearer how somebody can actually do something. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that want to do something good for the community and have no idea where to start. Yeah, absolutely. And with the, the speed of the media cycle and the social media cycle, it seems like everybody's attention spans is about this big. Oh, it's zero. Like, I, I can tell you firsthand, like, I I am the same way. My attention span is not great. So, like, it's a thing. And the reason I brought it up is because it's something that I need to work on, right? It's something that I focus on for myself all the time. I kind of take stock. And I'll go back in, like, things that I've posted about in the past on a regular basis. And I'll look at those things and I'll question myself. Like, and I'll ask, how do I feel about those things today? Like in right now, do I feel the same way? Is there anything more that can be said? Do I need to kind of go any deeper? Did someone make a comment that I hated in the moment that I'm, you know, these kind of things. I think that kind of reflection is really important for media to pay attention to. And because everything is so rapidly cycling, I don't know how many, not that I'm doing anything great, but the thing that people should be doing more in the media is actually paying attention to stuff that's happened and trying to actually go deeper, right? And go deeper than just like that, the top tier. What trends are you seeing starting to form in terms of the culture of the ski and cycling industries? So in cycling, I think the trend that you're starting to see is that people are just really into having fun on their bikes. And I think that is the best thing that could happen for bikes, right? Yeah. It, for a long time, it was racy and you ride bikes and you ride hard. But like I said, in the beginning of this, I really feel like mountain biking and riding bikes in general has become this thing that you can just go do. And even if you suck at it, nobody cares. Like nobody cares. So you just suck at it and just keep sucking until you suck a little less, 
right? Like on the side of my gravel bike, I have suck less like in a chalk marker written on the fork because it's really not about being good. Like I'm not going to be the best athlete in the entire world. And I don't really care to be right. It's not a goal of mine. I just want to have fun. Like I want to get to the point where I can go out there and I can have fun every single time. That's what's kind of trending in cycling to me because it's so apparent. You see so many projects now that are instead of like huge sends, it's about like people going out and having fun or doing this trip that they've always wanted to do. Or they've kind of positioned mountain biking and gravel biking into this total different, this t- different zone, I guess. Skiing is annoying. Is a really, is really annoying because it just seems like it, it frustrates me to no end. Like, I, I don't know what trends are happening in skiing. It seems like everybody is really interested in making the same products over and over again, like the same one ski quiver and like this does the, and I'm not saying they shouldn't. It's just, I feel like the ski industry is a little boring right now. Um, and maybe content wise, I think there's better content coming out of skiing than there ever has been. However, I feel like there's not a lot, like, I don't know, I'm bored of skiing right now. Like I'm bored of the industry. I'm bored of the way that things are. I think that it could just be so much more exciting and so much more about like the love of the sport and doing it, but we're so focused on how many lines there are and like past prices and what they're going on. And again, like rightfully so but it's become so muddy like and it's only my skier friends that i hear talking about this rarely do i end up hanging out with my snowboarder friends and they're like stressed about passes right and they're stressed about this area. and again maybe this is generalization because like the people that i hang out with tend to be i don't know like mystery people when i go skiing versus when i go snowboarding it's just with friends and you know maybe colleagues or acquaintances or whatever I just don't feel like, I feel like snowboarding has this ability to be cool, like in the most flat sense ever, right? Like it's just inherently cool. Skateboarding is the same way where it's just cool. There's nothing that you can say, like if somebody was was to ask me what skateboarding is, it's cool. It's cool because it's fun, right? That's like the core of it is like, even when you're pissed and you're throwing a skateboard into traffic, you can tell that there's so much love for it and there's so much fun being had in a group. And I just don't see that to the same level in skiing. And I don't know that's, I feel like that's been trending in the wrong direction for a long time in ski versus, like I said, on the flip, I think bikes have come a long way from where they were because it was a lot of John Watson told me a few days ago, like lycra clad, like psychos, basically. Like, it's just like, that's all it was. Like, that's just not what he is. And it's not what a lot of people are in bikes. And I think people are starting to realize you can ride a cool bike. You don't have to wear tights, you know, like you don't have to be a racer. You can just go do whatever you want. Wear tights if you want to. Don't wear tights if you want to. It does not matter. And, uh, and skiing is just not there. I have some of the most fun when I'm just out on my cruiser. Yeah, same. I just, if I'm ripping around, like it's great. I have a little BMX bike and I have a dirt jumper. Like I ride those all the time still. Till I, it hurts too much to ride those bikes. I'm going to ride those bikes. Totally. So you, I mean, You've been on both sides of the microphone for a long time and you do this stuff all the time. So what's one question you've always wanted to answer, but no one's ever asked you? Oh, I have no idea. No one's ever asked me. Yeah, um, what's something you've always wanted to talk about, but no one's talking about it? Oh man, that's a hard one. I don't know. The thing is I get to talk about so much stuff. Like I get to talk about so many things all the time it's hard for me to not bring up how i feel about topics especially when i'm on the like i'm the interviewer i try to not insert myself as the interviewer that much like i try to just be that as an interviewer but i'm human and inevitably like i put in my two cents to things and that's kind of how it goes so to answer your question i don't know you've hit on a lot of the things that matter to me already like in the sense that like i like talking about shit that really matters in the grand scheme of things not just the stuff that is the day-to-day like if Stuart winchester does 
the Storm Ski Journal and podcast, right? He's great at what he does. I could never do what Stewart does. I could never in a million years sit there and look on a spreadsheet and be like, okay, this pass is happening now. New drop, the indie passes, this right. Like, I don't care. Like, that is not what I appreciate the shit out of what Stewart does because Absolutely. I need it. I need yeah. somebody to do it. And if I could like, buy Stewart's show at some point and put it on the collective, I would. But it just doesn't make sense for me. So I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm always the type of person that just does what I want to do, right? And anybody that knows me knows that the hardest thing in the world to make me do is something that I don't want to do. And because I make myself do a lot of stuff. Like, I make myself do tons of things because hard things, right? Like, difficult. Like, I don't want to ride my bike for forever a lot of times, but I'll go and I'll ride my bike for forever. I don't want to go to the gym all the time. I'll go to the gym all the time, right? I don't want to educate myself on certain topics, but I'll have to, right? So as soon as somebody asks me to do a thing or, like, party that I have to go, like, that kind of stuff, I'm just like, like, I'm out. Like, I'm good. I don't care. I'm... I will not do a thing that I don't want to do anymore it, beyond like it. There's a difference to me between doing what I want to do and it being hard. Right. So I have no problem with something being hard and like required work. As soon as it's something where it's like I have a choice and somebody else wants me to do this thing and I don't agree with it. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. I want to do it. Like, it's just I'm not that kind of person like and again it doesn't mean that i don't want to help people that's actually like all i wanted to is help people as much as i can that's how like that's just how i was raised it's how i was built i guess is to want to help other people but at the same time if you just want me to come to some party or go to the bar or like go do this thing or big social gap like fuck that i'm out like that is just not it's just not what i want to do most of the time or I don't know there's so many examples of things like i don't care about going and doing a big party shred for whatever like the frank i i'm sure it's a great time would i have fun probably but if i don't want to go i don't want to go and there's nothing anybody could say to make me do it so i guess to that point to your question that nobody's really there hasn't really been anything that anybody's asked me about or hasn't asked me about i guess that i've wanted them to because like you've asked a lot of things that are important to me. And that is, that's all I really want is to have important conversation. What ends up happening more often than not is I start conversations and I'll have guests on or whatever. And it will be a conversation. I'm like, get me the fuck out of here. Like, I don't want to do this. This isn't fun. I'm not having a good time. Right. And a lot of times you can tell in the interview that I'm not having a great time because my questioning is different. My reactions are different. My, I, I don't have the same energy towards it. And it's just, and those are few and far between. Like, let me say, like, there's very few episodes that have happened like that, that we've put out because the ones that are that bad, I don't put out. Like, I'm like, eh, it's just, we're not going to, it didn't work out this time. Sorry. We'll try again later on, you know? So uh, speaking of the show, I, yourself, what, what's next? I know you've got a full calendar this summer. So what's coming up for you? What's coming up for the collective? What's going on? So our big push now is like, we're pushing YouTube hard. That's because we have a new studio that I'm sitting in and it's great. And that's kind of what our focus is. Our focus also is like building ourselves beyond just being a podcast and being like a full on media outlet. And that's kind of the thing that we are focused on more than ever now is we're doing a lot of events, like hopefully Grinduro at the end of the month and I don't know. We got a ton of different gravel mountain bike events over the course of the summer that we'll be at. Like we're trying to just be more present in real life because the podcast is great and I have a great time doing it. And I love being in this studio and hosting people here and doing the interview this way. And I don't think I'll ever change the way that this is formatted because I do enjoy it very much because I'm focused and I'm like, I have severe ADHD. So as soon as I get out of this room, I like that's why the quality of the interviews has changed so much from being in this room because I'm able to just focus and have a conversation, right? Versus it being like a hundred distractions. I'm in the shop, I'm in my basement here, there, the other place. It's just too hard. I can't focus on it. There's too much going on. There's too many distractions. I know I'm here. I'm here to work, but off topic. The What we have coming up basically is we are just trying to grow this thing to the moon as much as we can, right? Like we want more people to feel like they belong in skiing and outdoors. That's been the goal from day one. That's our goal going forward. That I don't think is ever going to change. We just want to do it at a broader level than just the podcast. So the YouTube is a big push for us now. Getting blog posts on the site has happened more and more, doing more gear review, 
and doing more in-person stuff at events is really what we have coming up. I mean, I, who knows what the event is, but if you follow us on Instagram or Twitter or any of those places, you'll find out like we're loud. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody knows, but I'm supposed to ask. So where does everybody find you? Where do we follow you? It is out of collective on everything except for Twitter, which is still out of podcast. That was the original. I kind of feel like the Twitter is the only thing I have full control over. Everybody else has access to the Instagram. Everybody else has access to the Facebook if they want it. The YouTube is kind of whatever we upload to the feed. Twitter is mine. Like Twitter, Twitter is like my brain, whatever comes out of my mouth there is me. And that's out of podcast. So I figured I'd keep that one intentionally original to what it was. Love it. And, and listeners, we will have all of those links on the show notes and you have to check out YouTube uh, and check out the studio. I'm so incredibly jealous. I've been jealous since you first posted. <laughs> I was like, I want a big purple. Can Ethan come up here and build me a big purple desk? Yeah. <laughs> Dream. <laughs> it's crazy that I have to give that dude a shout out every time because he does so much stuff and wants no credit. <laughs> like it is insane to me. For years, I tried to pay it. And he wouldn't take money. He just, he'd be like, look, I have money. I'm fine. I'm doing okay financially. I don't need your money. I want to grow this thing with you. We'll build this as much as we can. And just give me skis. And I was like, okay. So every contract I had with Fisher for up until basically this year, he was just written in as we give Ethan skis. Like that's part of it. He's written in as like into my contract as we also give skis to Ethan. So shout out to Ethan. He's, he's the shit. He makes a lot of the stuff behind the scenes happen. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time, dude. This has been really awesome. As nervous as I was going into it. Nervous for what? Super great. Well, I mean, like I said, you've been at this for oh. a while and I'm the new girl on the block. No, you're doing great. I think the stuff that you've put out is amazing. I, I really appreciate that you're doing it at all because it's a hard thing to do and it's annoying. And trust me, like I get how tedious it is and how much like work it is, especially in the beginning. Like we... We had like 40 downloads for like the first 20 episodes. And I was like, this is never going to work. And I wanted to quit so early on and it's changed a lot. So just keep doing it. It's you are extremely valuable in this space. Thank you. Yes. Anytime. Thank you for having me on. And that is it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where you can find Adam, The Collective, and all of the resources we talked about are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope you learned as much from this episode as I did. And if you did, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope that you will join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside. <laughs>